So, I believe we are live on the YouTubes now. People in the comments section, please verify for us that you can hear noises coming out of your screen. And hopefully you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth. Uh, thank you guys coming uh, for, for joining us again. We have a, a, a couple new folks uh, on the uh, on the live stream community forum this week. Uh, we have a uh, a couple of veterans and a new face, which I'm very excited to uh, speak with live. And yeah, but as we as we go around the horn in the comment section, please do let us know if you can hear us. Uh, make sure you drop a comment to confirm that's the case. And we'll go around the horn. And if you if you guys on the comment section do hear any sort of like you know if maybe I'm too loud versus everybody else or somebody's too soft do let us know so we can adjust that on our side so everything is working great we're hearing i can hear you yes sounds good okay perfect we got larry in the house we got the the rodman the rottles perfect all right so to kick off ryan let's uh start with you give us a, a brief introduction uh let us know how you stumbled upon tesla um you know, how, if you're an investor or whatever, and then we'll go around the horn and go with everybody else. So, Ryan, kick us off, my friend. Yeah, uh, so I'm Ryan from uh, Scotland, uh, just outside um, Glasgow. Um, basically, I first came across Tesla uh, when they announced the Roadster. Uh, that kind of got my interest. And I've just been following the company ever since then. I, I didn't invest uh, back then. I, I wasn't really involved in investing or anything but obviously I liked the company and I suppose when COVID hit um, it gave me a bit more time to look into the company and I actually became quite interested in investing um, so that's when I actually started investing um, last year probably wasn't the best time but um, I'm, I'm kind of in the dollar cost average strategy so hopefully it kind of works out well I didn't just jump right in um so yeah basically i've just been interested since then and i'm um, really enjoying getting in depth about the company and it's just really interesting when awesome. you say that the roadster do you mean the roadster too uh, I, I can't remember it was a, a while ago i was quite young when it got announced <laughs> i was i was like still in school if, I can't remember exactly, but I, I just remember uh, being really interested in electric vehicles in particular, and that was like the kind of the best one at the time, uh, and probably still is. <laughs> I'm still uh, leading with all the vehicles, so yeah, that was the one that stuck out though uh, when I first became interested. Awesome. Oh wow! So it's been like what fifty? Maybe 14 years or something like that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> wow, that's a long time. Ryan's an OG fan. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. I, I think I was about 12 then, because uh, I'm 26 now, so I, must have, <laughs> like, I was yeah. still in school and I was becoming interested in it. Awesome. Yeah, that, that, that was... Uh, I remember for me, it was when the Model S... The Model S was the one, and then I, and then I found the Roadster, but you were like early, early on the on the Tesla sort of like interest so that's pretty awesome thank you man thank you for the introduction mike let's go ahead and uh, uh have you introduce yourself real quick um i started following tesla uh just right before the um cyber truck was revealed so i kind of 
Um, I heard about it through, well, I heard, had heard about Tesla at some point earlier, but I don't remember <laughs> exactly when, but uh, I didn't really follow it until I read um, Wait But Wise blog posts. And that was just, I was just like super into it after that. I don't know why, it's just, he's a good writer and it just like, it stuck with me. And, and I just, I love the, the vast mission of it. And it like this battle of like, tesla versus the you know the current status quo and and how we're you know i just love it and um and then what else oh yeah i'm i'm invested since i don't know like about a year ago so yeah awesome cool thank you mike yeah i first became aware of elon and you know tesla and spacex probably in the early 2010s maybe around 2013 or so i had a friend that i had gone to college with who was getting really excited about tesla at the time and uh i can't remember when they opened up the reservation queues for the model 3 that would have been several years later but um he kind of already had it on his radar and so i just heard about it through him a little bit and uh then Probably 2014, I was in graduate school with someone who um, was very interested in going to work at SpaceX, and he actually did end up getting a job there. Um, so kind of through them, I was aware of this thing. And then, yeah, um, I didn't really know much about it at all at the time. And then when Wait But Why, Tim Urban wrote his pieces on Elon Musk, uh, I read all of those, got very interested in it. And then I, you know, I kind of watched and observed it uh, for a while, and I didn't really invest until after they had started to make some good progress in the Model 3 ramp. And once I saw that they weren't going to die uh, from the Model 3, then I went ahead and started investing in my personal retirement account there. Awesome. Great. Thank you guys very much for those uh, introductions. Uh, and it does look like we... Uh, we sound pretty good to everybody, so that's that's awesome. We also have somebody in the chat that once they had seventeen pints of Guinness, so that's amazing. <laughs> I saw that. And I smiled. How did that go? <laughs> Hopefully, that was over a long period of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quantify the uh, the length of time for us, Toto. Like, yeah, I had seventeen Guinness over seventeen months. Cool. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, perfect. All right. So, so the, the topic we'll kick off with today, uh, and we'll do our usual. So those that are familiar with the show, we'll, we'll start off with, uh, with a topic that's been uh, going around here, um, in the Tesla sort of, uh, sphere for the last day or so, and then we'll get into, uh, our community topics. So our, our panel members will, uh, propose a topic and we'll really, uh, deep dive that topic. So the one that's been, um, uh, uh, of, uh, Really, uh, curiosity for the for the community. Oh, and let me also say that if in the comments section, you guys, please feel free to throw your ideas out. Do f feel free to to expand on any topics that we're talking about. Uh, we want this to be a, a community, a true community forum. So you know, you have your panelists, and then but then if you're in the comments section, don't feel like you you can't add to the conversation. I'll be reading the comments and making sure that if there's anything that pops out that we should really discuss. I'll make sure to bring it up. But uh, Elon's recent interview with the uh, with the uh, uh, the club from uh, I'm so sorry it was it San Francisco I'm so sorry I forgot which which club he interviewed yeah. with yeah uh, Silicon Valley Tesla owner Silicon Valley I think that's, that's right, right. Um, and he made a comment about how Austin and Berlin are are uh, cash furnaces they're burning cash like crazy and uh, there seem to be some conversations around that 
And, and so that's one of the topics that I'd like to sort of kick us off with since it's fresh on everyone's mind. Uh, does anyone have any, so anybody on the panel uh, in, in the comments, any ideas, any sort of like takes from that comment? Does that make you concerned? Uh, is it sort of just a passing comment? How do you guys interpret uh, that soundbite? And whoever wants to go first, feel free to, to start it. I think so. When I heard it, I, I just, it, like it was. I think I don't. I don't remember exactly, but I think it was in reference to them saying like, "What about the plaid? Like a plaid Model Three, or what about like they were asking like other little projects?" And Elon's like, mm -hmm. "Look, he's like, I, I think he was just trying to let them know like we are intensely focused on this burning pile of cash. Like that is number one priority, if that makes any sense. And it's like, oh yeah, that does make sense. If I had a burning pile of cash, I'd definitely, you know, be trying to extinguish that um, before trying to, you know, think of the next cool project to come up with. Um, so that's how I interpreted it. And, and also he was like, he was like, and you know, we have these certain problems to deal with, but we'll, we'll handle it. Like he's felt very confident um, that they'd be able to handle it. It just takes time and attention. Um, and so I just felt at ease about the whole thing. I wasn't concerned. What about you guys? Yeah, I agree. It's basically, it, it doesn't want to add complexity before reaching scale. The, the most important thing with the factory is get it up to scale um, because otherwise it is just going to be burning money until you get the, the scale required to um, make profits. So, yeah, I think you're right with that. Uh, just focusing on the the the, car, the cars that they, they make. So, yeah, I think I, I'm not too worried. The, the, the supply chain is a bit worrying, but um, they, they seem to have under control um, just a matter of time before they got up to scale. Yeah, I think, you know, just dissecting the mechanics of what it is that he's talking about, they've got a quite, you know, a decent headcount there in you know at both factories austin and berlin and it's not nearly as big as it's going to be they'll definitely be ramping up the number of people that are working in those factories but there's already quite a few that are there and so when he's talking about the burning pile of cash what that is is that's you know a lot of fixed overhead that is in people's salaries and hourly pay that they're in there doing a lot of work and right now they don't have any cash that's being generated by those factories in the form of sales to offset those and you know we've seen so far the ramp of giga berlin just being significantly slower than the ramp of giga shanghai and so that means that you're going to have losses from both austin and berlin that are going to be an overhang on the stock um, that we didn't see with Shanghai. And I think a lot of people have been basically modeling the growth in both of those factories off of what we did in Shanghai. And so they're they're basing expectations for profits from those factories um, off of the timeline that we saw profits from Shanghai. And so, yeah, the longer that we have a bunch of people working in those factories without having volume production reached, yeah, the more... Yeah, you just have an area under the curve there that's a lot of, you know, significant losses. So definitely that's what he's talking about. Um, and then I think I agree with, you know, everyone as far as Elon's not worried about that posing an existential threat to the company. He's confident that they're going to get all that sorted out. Um, supply chain is definitely going to be the thing. I, one of the biggest disappointments for me in hearing what he was talking about was when he said that, you know, they are bringing the 2170 lines to Giga Texas. 
uh, or Giga Austin, because that means that their 4680 ramp is definitely not going to, uh, they're not expecting as much output out of that line as, you know, they were hoping for. Um, and so that means that our 4680 ramp is going to be slower than we anticipated. Um, so uh, in my mind, these are all kind of minor, like ultimately they're minor, but definitely things to be keeping an eye on and watching out for. Um, hopefully we do see the S curve on production that maybe this is instead of having a much shallower slope on the ramp up of the number of vehicles coming out of those to where it takes twice as long because right now they're going twice as slow at Giga Shanghai. Maybe it's just like a three or six month lag because of supply chain issues that once we can get through all that, then they can hit the knee and the S curve and then it will be, you know, we're just shifting over a few, you know, maybe a quarter, uh, max two quarters on when we're going to see those come into full, full production. So, um, yeah, I think it, there's potential that it could go either way. I, I would definitely think it's much more likely that it's just a couple, three, three to six months delay. Um, but that's definitely what we need to be paying attention to and watching for is do we get some significant acceleration in the production output of both of those facilities very soon? Um, yeah. And then continue to monitor, you know, how much 2170 output is going to end up having to make up that production growth out of Giga Austin. So. I liked, um, I like Marcus's comment about just, he's trying to set expectations, you know, making sure people aren't just like, oh yeah, it's, it's running. That means it's going to just start printing money. The financials are going to look really great. He's like, well, not yet. Yeah. 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 Uh, that's the one you're referencing right there on the screen. Mike, yeah, I just want to make sure I got it. Yeah. Marcus okay. is <clears throat> Perfect. Yeah. I think, I think there's also, I agree with that. I think, I wonder how much of that too. So like if you compare, I'm really trying to get into the, the sort of like um, layer of understanding when Elon's sandbagging versus when he's trying to really set expectations. And those comments in my head, I'm trying to figure out, okay, so which one is, and I still haven't made up my mind of what it is, but the, the one thing that's interesting about this time, about, about sort of how vocal he is about them being a, a, a cash furnace, okay? So when we're thinking about uh, Fremont ramping or Shanghai ramping, if those comments were made during that time, I think they would have been taken like, like as like, oh sh shit, like Tesla is in really big trouble. Right. And where uh, now that he's saying those comments sort of to what you guys have alluded to and Hans, especially when you were kind of sort of walking through that through your thought is um, he's, he's really just uh, saying like this is exactly if this keeps going the way it's going, this is exactly what's going to happen. We're going to burn a ton of cash. Right. But at the same time, I'm wondering if maybe maybe he might be gearing for uh, uh, a little bit of a sandbag to try and and sort of set a low expectation so that if uh, Berlin and Austin figure out their supply chain challenges, if the 4680 line starts to really go into the next gear, if 2170 being added, which is a line that they're already very familiar with and something that they really understand, whatever the best you variation... Mean, you mean sorry. 2170? Yeah, that's what I meant. Sorry. What did I say? 2680? <laughs> 
<laughs> Listen, we got new battery technologies now, bro. Okay. Um, we just made it up. Uh, 2170. Thank you. Um, the, the, also, the other thing to understand there is that if they are going to put the 2170 line in, in Austin or uh, Berlin or wherever they decide to put it in, that's going to be the best version of that line as well. Right, so it's not going to be a, just a copy of whatever is in Fremont or Shanghai or, or Nevada. It's going to be the best version of that line with additional improvements. So I, I do think there's also a. And I would love to hear your thoughts on this. I think there's a there's a little bit of sandbagging nature to that comment. No, Elon, with Elon knowing that this was going to be obviously a public discussion and and something that's going to you know gather a lot of uh, sort of a attention. And I'm wondering how much he leveraged that forum and that visibility to try and really set low expectations so that it's, uh, so that their, their team can have a, a pretty big win so that they can be really, really uh, excited for it, especially with the 10% cuts that are happening in salary, especially with everybody running around the company, probably with their asses on fire because they're like, holy shit, mm -hmm. like Elon's comment, you know, Elon's really worked up. So I'm curious to hear y'all's thoughts on that. Maybe I think there might be a little bit of more sandbagging nature to that comment than, than just setting expectations, but let me know what you guys think. I don't know. Because like, it, if he's sandbagging there, does, does that mean he's also sandbagging with like full self-driving? You know, like, because he was like, oh, yeah, it'll be done by end of this year. I'd be shocked if it wasn't done by the end of this year um, and stuff like that. If that's sandbagging, then, then maybe it'll be done by October or September or something like that. You know, like it'll be out of beta, um, ready for anyone to download. But yeah, I don't, I don't know if he's like sandbagging everything. I think it's it's maybe just specifically for that one because it, it is it is something that the team is already familiar with per se. I think I think going full self driving like um, like releasing full self driving in its entirety it's something that's a little bit newer to the company because it is a brand new technology that they're finalizing. Whereas getting a battery line up and running or getting the supply chain figured out is something that theoretically they've been doing for a long time, right? Um, sorry, Hans, I thought you were going to say something there. I think I interrupted you. Um, well. So my thought was just that I think there may be some sandbagging there, but I think a lot of it is also just, uh, you know, setting a, the proper sense of urgency for the staff at Berlin and Austin to get their butt in gear and get moving. And I know that I'm sure he's been doing that, uh, but also just putting that out there in the public sphere that like we're creating a little bit of a public spotlight on the fact that we need to get things moving in the right directions here in these factories. Um, and, you know, he didn't say anything about the fact that they're about to do that upgrade in Shanghai, which is going to increase the rated output for Shanghai. Uh, just, I think just the first portion of the factory at Shanghai to over a million units per year, which is pretty insane. Like it's more output, out of a single factory, like the first phase of the Shanghai factory, than they delivered in all of 2021. So, um, you know, that'll be that'll be pretty insane. Uh, so, you know, I think there's some definite tailwinds there for financial performance and for the stock coming out of Shanghai to offset what's going on in Berlin and Austin. Um, that. So uh, that would lead me towards, yeah, I think your Elon is probably sandbagged. Like, I'm going to keep y'all's attention focused over here on the things that are not necessarily um, going as well just to help put that spotlight and the pressure on our team to perform. 
Um, and I'm not going to tell you until we hit Q3 uh, in, or the quarterly report just how awesome Shanghai is like knocking it out of the park. Mm-hmm. It might also have something to do with the fact that the 2170s uh, machinery is like stuck at the port and that's something that might be out of tesla's control and so because of that maybe then he's like well mm-hmm. you know it could take a long time so he's kind of going worst case scenario because it's out of their control whereas if it's something in their control like full self-driving he he's different about it you know i don't know mm-hmm. yeah that's a good observation ryan any thoughts yeah i think that's a good uh, a good way to think about it um he seems to be ambitious about things that he thinks is in-house um, and maybe th- there's just certain things he can't deal with himself and unless he does um, go all in with it. But yeah, it, it definitely does make sense. Are you guys concerned about a multi-quarter overhang from like the, the challenges from Berlin and Austin? I, I, I think somebody brought it up a little bit where there could be um, a situation where it's not just a Q2 problem, it's potentially a Q3 problem or a Q3 problem where I think I think Elon's guidance uh, not too long ago was that, you know, Q3 and Q4 are going to be like stellar or something. Like he made a comment about like Q3 and Q4 are going to be freaking crazy. But how do you guys feel about that now? Do you guys need to see some sort of news coming out? Is this sort of like a wait and see? Let's see what he says in Q2. How do you guys think about that? I would say probabilities are... You know, sixty forty in my mind that um, percent chance that Q three is still going to be at least very strong, if not, you know, leave a forty percent chance that no, it's it's still so. I mean, that's kind of my current evaluation to reevaluate as we see news, but I, I do expect to see really big things Shanghai in Q three. Um, and then I expect to see good progress in Berlin and, uh, you know, nominal progress from Austin. I could see it kind of being both things, though. You know, like it could be Q3 and Q4 are amazing in, in regards to the number of Model Y and other, you know, all their vehicles produced. However, uh, it kind of lacks a little bit maybe in cash flow or something else like that. So maybe it's like a combination of good and bad. I think that Zach has done a really good job on, um, you know, forecasting. And we will see that as the the next year wears on. How good has Zach been at forecasting what their cost of goods is going to be when they're delivering those those models and those vehicles, but they've definitely been increasing prices for so long that I think that margins shouldn't take any significant hit. In fact, they may actually grow um, just due to price increases. Even I think that yeah, their their price increases probably are going to outpace their cost of goods sold increases. Um, now, how much of that will be able to absorb this massive massive cash? Um, outlay from these factories not being up to volume production. That is, you know, out, that's the risk there as far as cash flow. To your point, Mike, is that it, you know, if we don't get enough progress there. So I wonder if this is going to be an incentive for them. Because I know, you know, obviously with Fremont and Shanghai, they really didn't have an incentive to break out margin, like margin per factory. 
in a way, like saying, hey, this is how much money we're making on Fremont on Shanghai. But I'm wondering if Berlin and Austin become overhangs for a long time and the market, and this is sort of like tied to RB's comment here of uh, current prices in line with the challenges they're encountering. Uh, from his perspective, glad they are cutting back and focusing on the factory ramps. Every ramp tends to be challenging. But I wonder if if Berlin and Austin become big overhangs, are they going to be incentivized to say, well, you know, we are not where we should be from a company perspective, from a margin perspective, but Shanghai's got 35% margins, Fremont's nearing 25 and Berlin and Austin are going to go at Shanghai level or above. Like, I mean, I'm wondering if that's going to become a dynamic where if there is an overhang, they'll start to really start <laughs> to drive that conversation towards like, we, like we're fine. And we'll actually get insight into how much money Shanghai is actually making, what, what margins they're actually drawing, especially out of factory theoretically that, that concept like could produce a million units a year plus or whatever. Like that could be banana sort of margin numbers, but... I'm not sure if that's a that's a realistic expectation or not. Yeah, it might yeah. still be held back a bit um, by um, obviously Texas and Berlin uh, ramping up, but I think uh, Shanghai could be a bit quicker if they they shouldn't be coming the COVID policies down recently. So it's looking a bit more optimistic out there, and they do seem to get things done fast over there when they're not um, hindered by COVID. So. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how, how quick can uh, upgrade uh, Shanghai. Do you guys have any insights? So this is an interesting question that sort of applies to the Berlin Austin discussion. So just listen, I deal with supply chain issues all day at work, trying to buy stock for my business. Lead times have changed from weeks to months. So uh, and just verify for us, just listen, this is a, still a recent sort of thing that you're dealing with here in the last couple of weeks. Um, do you guys have any insight into uh, any sort of ideas as far as you, that has sort of that you guys are directly plugged into from a supply chain perspective? And also anybody in the comments, are you guys still facing those challenges or are you seeing anything from your end or do you, are you not? Do you, you don't have the right signals to to uh, verify? I don't I don't really know. OK. Um, at, at my work, there's definitely a lot of um, shortages still uh, getting things in. Uh, a, a lot of things you're, you just don't even know a, a timescale on, um, getting them delivered. So uh, it's still pretty bad, the supply chain, I would say, because um, they can't even put a timeline on some products. So it's mm-hmm. not looking good <laughs> over here. Yeah, I'm not plugged into anything these days uh, to get a direct sense of it, but I definitely can't imagine that everything going on in Ukraine is helping matters. Like, it doesn't seem like that's a a tailwind for success. Yeah. Uh, one of the comments from John, I manage supply chain at my job as well, and lead times are three to five, four times longer, but inventory levels are taking that into account now. Um, so that's... That's interesting, and and John, verify this for me, but I'm guessing, uh, is your company more mature than, say, a Tesla would be? Oh, my God, what just happened to Ryan? <laughs> 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 Ryan, your sideways yeah, face, bro. Sorry. Oh, there he is. He's back. Yeah, no, you're uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was hilarious, dude. I was always going to say, keep that, bro. Just kidding. Um, uh but uh, yeah, John, do let us know what's the um, what's the maturity level of your company too, because I think in, in Tesla's case or, or any sort of company that's growing super fast, 
they probably don't have the luxury of adjusting their supply chain and uh, their, their lead times to account for higher inventory. Um, so to adjust for that longer lead time because they're, they're just eating through that supply so freaking quickly. So um, do verify that for us, John. Um, yeah. Any other thoughts on the topics uh, from you guys? I don't know. My, my main thought is just like if, if this is a, a problem, it's just a short-term problem and long-term Tesla looks great, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Okay. Um, let's uh, let's kick off with the next uh, topic. Um, I know, Mike, you, you put a couple on the Discord. Uh, maybe kick us off with, with yours. And then uh, uh, once we're done with that one, we'll have Ryan go and then we'll have Hans uh, with his. So, Mike, kick us off with uh, your topic. Okay. Um, I, I like this topic of... Um, Joe Justice um, brought this up, and and it, he he brought up this the idea that like the the major uh, goal of Elon's companies is to expand the light of consciousness, and um, and so like and and Elon also talked about that at the end of his most recent interview where he talked about his philosophy, um, and it just seems like um, like. You can definitely tell that he's read a lot of sci-fi and, you know, in sci-fi, there's a lot of humans, you know, going across, you know, the galaxy and things like that um, and exploring and spreading out. And um, and he wants that so that so that we can hopefully find answers to questions like what is the meaning of life? What's beyond the simulation? Things like that, Um, because he he has those 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 questions. And um, I think a lot of us do. But um, and so I just, from that perspective, I kind of, I, I like thinking about that because um, it seems like Tesla's short-term goal is to transition the world to sustainable energy, but their long-term goal uh, is is to just do anything that expands the light of consciousness. And, and um, you, you know, what do you guys think of that? I have a couple of thoughts, but Hans, did you want to go? I'm curious to hear your thoughts, Farzad, and then maybe I'll uh, yeah. jump in if Ryan doesn't have anything. Yeah. I do think, I think that's a very interesting comment because I think that the really the long-term goals, kind of like you said, like expand consciousness, I think it's directly tied to also really motivating and inspiring everyone who either touches or sees what Elon and his teams are working on. It's almost like he's trying really, really hard to create this uh, motivation in society to to work on big things, right? And this is sort of no secret. I mean, SpaceX mm-hmm. and everything else that he's doing. But what, what I'm most curious about is sort of linking it to Joe Justice and uh, uh, people that are trying to take that blueprint. I think it's it's one of the biggest things that's missing from people actually being happy where they work or what they work on because they don't have that that sort of fundamental, very uh, existential thing that they're working on that inspires them to be like, I'm willing to work this hard to make this happen, right? And I think, I think that's a very important um, variable that Tesla and SpaceX and all the other companies that Elon works on benefit from is that mission. You know, it's, it's everything's tied to 
like you just said, Mike, not only just expanding the light of consciousness, but making the future better in some way. Right. Um, and what I, and, and I actually think about this a lot is like how many companies out there actually can do that? Like how many concepts are out there that would benefit from having a mission that's of that scope or uh, an ambition that's that large? And, and you, you guys tell me, I mean, you know, obviously let me know what, whatever you guys think, but like, to me, it seems like there's only a finite number of companies that can exist that can, that can take advantage of that. You know, like, are we just doomed to having, you know, two or three companies in the world that have these grandiose, huge missions that are super existential and they're going to have a monopoly on all employees because everyone's just going to want to work for those companies. And then if you layer on the advent of AI and automation and robotics, like, where does that lead? Like, how many companies do we really truly need in the world? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That, that really, if they really utilize that uh, thing that you just described, Mike, of that existential, like, big idea thing, um, I just don't think there's a lot of market. That there's a market for a lot of companies. But that's sort of what goes through my mind. Uh, let, me, let me know. Yeah, I think that um, when I look at Elon's various companies that he already has, that SpaceX is kind of that spreading the light of human consciousness among the stars company or advancing the light of consciousness, really that and then Neuralink. And neither one of those companies is really a company that has found that product market fit, you know, Elon has said specifically that the purpose of a company is to provide valuable products and services to other people. And um, there's a difference in the size of a company that can do that. Um, so you've got smaller companies that he prefers to keep private if possible, and then the larger companies that will eventually go public. I think that these huge existential missions that very few of them overlap with a company that can actually provide a service that is of a scale that it deserves to be a pri or a public company. Um, most of those are going to be smaller companies, and I think they will dominate in high-quality talent. Um, I mean... With the macro market the way that it is, there's definitely a chance that we do see um, smaller companies getting into the public markets. I think there's going to be a, a little bit less liquidity available in the private markets. I think that the public markets will end up having to be tapped in ways that they haven't had to be over the last five years, um, just as liquidity ends up coming down. And so that that could kind of change the dynamics a little bit. Um, but yeah, I, I'll just be very interested to see if Tesla ends up kind of growing into that it, spreading the light of human consciousness arena or if it really just stays focused on advancing the world's transition to sustainable energy and potentially like more of a preservation of life on Earth um, other than, you know, it, eventually if that technology becomes useful to SpaceX as they're colonizing other planets – um, uh, that kind of gray area, I don't know how Elon thinks about that yet. And I don't know of a whole lot of 
things that we can point to to give us solid clues that he thinks that when you know basically i'm wondering if he kind of has compartmentalized like spacex is expanding the physical presence of consciousness in the universe neuralink is expanding the scope of biological digital consciousness and then tesla is really energy um labor and uh and kind of yeah focused in that realm um and then how will those things interplay with one another as they all go through their different s curves of technology growth and expansion so doesn't that sound like a monopoly on everything though <laughs> yeah you know what i'm saying yes yeah kind of <laughs> and that, that's like that's where where i'm like that's where i'm stuck because it's like if it really executes at the level that we know that those companies can execute at, like what else do you need? You have a company that generates all the energy, does all the labor, does all the automation. You have a company that interconnects people's brains. You have a company that takes you from planet to planet and within the planet. You have a company that is the communications network for the entire planet. Like what else do you need? You know, in those bots and in the farms, you can automate all that. I don't know. I, I might be thinking crazy, but like, what, like truly, what else do you need? You yeah, know, it's mind-boggling to think about like the the consequences if he if he manages to pull everything that he wants to do. Like, it's just you can't even comprehend it, what it would mean for everything if if he does manage to achieve everything he wants to. It would just be incredible. Yeah, I mean, if we really are in an age of abundance, the the availability of um, you know there, there's a possibility that you get to an end state where it's infinite level of um, basically product specificity that every person has their own unique set of products and services that they produce for other people and then consume. Um, and so I don't know if there do need to be more intermediaries in between, like do these different companies provide platforms that enable these infinitely variable products and services um, or not? And then, but, you know, on the, on the flip side, I think that the, the next 10, 20, 30 years of life on earth are pretty pivotal and definitely not, uh, definitely not rosy looking from the standpoint, like what Elon is doing is pretty exciting and hopeful. And then a lot of most everything else is really scary. Yeah. Yeah. So now I feel like the conversation could branch two ways. It could go towards, you know, wh why things could be scary and, and what Tesla might do to try to prevent that or make that less likely or whatever. Or we could, um, keep talking about the, um, I forgot. It's okay. oh, oh. No, I did, there was one comment that was actually just left that I think kind of ties to, to sort of what you're saying a little bit, but the only places left are farming politics and the social sciences when he change in those, but like politics and social sciences, why isn't that Twitter, you know, and farming, why isn't that just bots and automation of machinery, you know, like even, even if those are handled. Yeah. Yeah, I think that um, you know, the I'm really excited to see what Freeberg does with 
the molecular basically printing technology that um, he's talked a lot about just having the ability to grow proteins and, and different things. Um, and that should be automated. I know that that, that will be something that gets developed completely outside of anything that Elon is doing. And then whether it gets purchased or consumed, you know, subsumed into one of his things or one of his, uh, you know, if he's got great AI and they want to use that as part of the operating infrastructure to, to do that, that's definitely something that will take up quite a bit of farming and subsistence production. Oh, I remember what I wanted to say. So it doesn't surprise me, like looking at how Tesla likes to vertically integrate because Elon doesn't like, um, he doesn't like the fate of, of the mission being in other people's hands. You know, he likes to have control as much as possible so that, so that he ensures that the mission is fulfilled. Um, and so like from that point of view, it kind of makes sense that he's kind of got these companies that he's chosen and, and how, it seems like that could, that could, kind of, those companies alone could could ensure the, the, um, his final mission of expanding light of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Ryan, any thoughts? Yeah, I agree with that. It it, it definitely needs to get into mining. I think um, as well, just for, as you said, it it doesn't want to leave things out of his hands. So. It seems like inevitable that he's going to get into mining, and they keep bringing it up more and more. More recently, I think that at the annual meeting this year, I think they've got to announce that they're mm-hmm. getting into mining. There just seems like too much of a shortage. So, yeah, definitely, I think he'll they'll begin down that route. Yeah. Um, go ahead, Mike. Well, what you said about Twitter being the social sciences and political thing. I liked that because he wants to make Twitter – he wants to like kind of verify as many people as possible. And and if you, if you do that, then you can do these massive polls of like verified people, and, and that's how you get an accurate view of what exactly. does the world want? You know, what do people want? Yeah. And then that will help guide his decisions for like you know the things. Exactly. And he's talked specifically about using such a platform for direct democracy experiments. That that's kind of his basic conceptual idea of how how government on Mars would probably work. Yeah, yeah. There there is there is a lot tied to that, and we, we've talked about it before. But like that that Twitter acquisition, which I believe is definitely going to happen. I mean, it, it, there's no way he would be <laughs> going through this stuff with the with yeah. the entire sort of team unless he actually wants to make it happen. Uh, there's really big plans for that thing. And I think that's a that's a perfect example of using that. It's like a legitimate barometer for what humans want and what mm-hmm. humans seek. And and a, uh, a platform, like, you know, he calls it the public square, but it's like the public square taken to its maximum potential, which is humanity's will, <laughs> you know? It's it's pretty wild. Mm-hmm. Real quick, I want to read this comment, Buck. Thank you so much for the uh, ten dollar uh, super chat, my friend. Uh, just wanted to say thanks uh, to Farzad and friends for pioneering and executing this unique format that highlights the thoughts and discussion of everyday Tesla super fans. Buck, come on, bro, that's so nice. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you, man. That's very Buck sweet. is awesome. Yeah, Buck is the man. He's been around for for a long time. 
just a just a great member of the community. Thank you so much, Buck. That's that's super sweet of you to say. And obviously, thank you to, to the panel and uh, the community. I mean, you guys, it's really what makes this. You know, it's this is the beautiful part of it. Um, yeah, man, it's 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 super fascinating. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, there's just so much, so much, so much tied to that entire. Um, it sounds so far fetched and almost crazy, but if you just follow the um, sort of Elon's ability to execute and what he's been working on, I just don't see how we don't end up with that sort of outcome where we have the world of plenty, which is, in my view, and I'm still trying to figure it out, like I said, monopolized <laughs> by like two or three companies. And I'm not so sure if that in the end is a good thing or a bad thing. Like society is going to look so freaking different. It, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be such a weird thing to, to process. You know? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. And I think as it's because it's weird to process, a lot of people are going to feel anxiety about it. The anxiety about the, the changes. The we used to vote on paper and with ballots, and and now we do most of our decision making as 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 a community through this online thing. And and you know it. And so like I don't know. I think there'll be a lot of um, just worry about it. Don't you think? Yeah, I, I think um, there was some there was something Hans that that, that said uh, which Mike you were jumping on where Hans you said that it was like the current things that are going on right now like it doesn't look too good or something along those lines mm -hmm. and Mike you and there was a so here's a comment we need more let's agree to disagree rather than us versus them only then we can start to have proper discussions and understand both sides is that what you're implying Hans or was that was there something else attached to that. Oh, there's, I mean, there's a lot of things that are attached to that for me. Um, the the way that social media dynamics are operating currently is definitely part of that. But um, yeah, I think that, you know, really the world a lot of times is kind of teetering on the edge of more towards chaos or more towards, you know, positive order. Um, and then it kind of swings back and forth. And we've we're coming off of a time of, you know, really some of the best periods in human history with relatively little conflict, relatively uh, good prosperity, relatively little poverty. And, you know, that's by no means to say that the world is, you know, this magical place of rainbows and unicorns. But if you look back in history, like better than it's ever been. And, I think we're coming to the end of a period of time where we, we can expect that to be the norm and that the invasion of Ukraine really marked the beginning of a new transition in human history back towards being more chaotic. I mean, you know, we're still potentially flirting with a nuclear conflict here and we don't know how that's going to go. And I think, you know, most people my age, we've never lived with the threat of a nuclear conflict in any serious way. And it doesn't like register with us the same way that my parents or uh, grandparents had to, to live with that. And um, then all of the ways that the entire global economy has built up this interdependence in order to operate and, you know, a lot of the, the poverty that has been eliminated in, around the world, a lot in China, but even in Africa, um, the food stability, you know, we, we were in a point 
where the only people who were starving were people who were caught in regions of political unrest. And so whatever political unrest was going on was the thing that was creating famine in that area. Uh, I think I said poverty earlier, but I was talking about famine. Um, yeah, that people being able to get food. And um, the way that we're disrupting the food supply chain right now, that's not going to be the case. It's going to be the inverse. We're going to see areas of the world really struggle to secure their food supplies. And then that will create political unrest, which will create conflicts, which then further, you know, feed the cycle of supply chain issues. And, you know, as the, as the world starts to deglobalize instead of being globalized Mm -hmm. between COVID and the Ukraine um, conflicts, there's so much incentive now in the system to be like, okay, hey, we need to be self-reliant. We don't need to be so interdependent on everyone else around the world where this interdependence has been part of the thing that has created this era of peace and prosperity is that, yeah, we've got some conflicts around the world, but they're really um, kept to a pretty manageable level because everyone needs everyone so much. And so we're now experimenting with, yeah, well, how much do we really need each other? And the less we need each other, the less our incentives are aligned with one another, the more we are totally going to see increasing amounts of conflict, increasing amounts of chaos in the world. And then, you know, that's going to feed a lot of different areas, but supply chains are going to be one of those things too. And so I think the macro outlook and the macro headwinds that we're facing, both from an economic perspective, um, but also from a geopolitical perspective, they, they're they pretty uh, pretty intimidating. So. Wow. Is, is there something that Tesla could do to, to help with, like to mitigate the risks of supply chain issues? Because, for example, the Powerwall and Starlink and things like that already help with you know issues um with the grid going down right no i mean uh, those are technologies that are great long-term solutions for energy independence and you know creating a transition to sustainable energy but you're talking about a process that's decades long and we're talking about problems that can have severe negative uh impact on local economies in a matter of months, not even years. Um, and so, yeah, it's not something that you can just supply enough power walls and solar panels or solar roof to offset. I mean, we're, we're already seeing that right now. Like it can't, we can't offset the demand for global oil with new sustainable yeah. energy projects. So, I was talking more like long term, you know, like right now, of course, they're not not ready for that. But I think long term, I, I could see like a Tesla bot in every home that's mm-hmm. that's able to like recycle or repair anything that goes wrong in your home um, and such that you can keep instead of needing a constant inflow of new materials mined from far away. Instead, you're just you're just recycling and repairing things. Um, if something goes wrong, you can just do that. And, um, and then also like a farm that's in your, on your property and, you know, like that's hydroponic or whatever, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that that technology creates that possibility, but you're assuming a continuous function between here and there and geopot, like 
all the technology is built on a geopolitical landscape that's stable. And creating a discontinuity in our geopolitical landscape can make that future just disappear. And this is what we've seen. You know, this is why Elon is very concerned about expanding the light of consciousness is because if we just look at our own historical record, we can see that, hey, every major culture, every major society that has even existed in our history has already disappeared. You know, the Romans are not still in power. Neither are the Egyptians, neither are the Mesopotamians. Um, you can go back throughout the course of human history, and we have always managed to extinguish our cultural and societal achievements and go back to periods of relative, um, you know, poverty and technological uh, lack. And so... Yeah, that's, you know, that's a scary thing. I think the really interesting thing about the, the Tesla Elon comment, though, within this sort of discussion is that the, te the technologies that he's working on, in my mind, at least a lot of them, would help drive, I don't know if this is positive or negative, but it would help drive that, in, in my opinion, that deglobalization aspect of what's happening right now, too, because you're enabling these local economies to become much more self-reliant on their on their on their energy sources, right? Like the whole advent mm -hmm. of solar and batteries is theoretically going to allow uh, countries and uh, nation states to not, not have to rely on outside forces that might have different incentives and different sort of morals versus them to literally allow them to run their country and their energy sources, right? Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think that's super interesting too because it's like. It's like, how is this sort of variable going to drive that? Like, we're going to have more and more technology and tools that's going to allow more and more nation states to be more and more less less self-reliant self on other powers, you know? And so what is, is that going to be better for this dynamic? Is that going to be worse for this dynamic? You know, I don't know. It's it's very interesting to think about. It's yeah. really, really interesting. I think it would be better. I think the thing about it is it's just going to take time um, before any of that actually comes through. Um, it's just too many yeah, shortages and things, but eventually you could see the, the possibility where if, if everybody's energy efficient and the, what, what's the need for conflict uh, after that? Do, do you know what I mean? Um, it's just... It's hard to see if if everybody can kind of come together uh, and and solve their own problems, then th there's no need for the the conflict. And that's the way I see it, anyway. Hmm, yeah, but to to sum up, if I could, what what you said, Hans, um, like it's it's great if we can get to the point where where we're able to have these local self-sustaining communities. But we might not get there because that that you know we we are trying to get there. Tesla's trying to get there as fast as possible, I'm sure, um, with their roadmap. But but if it takes you know if something goes wrong, then we might never get there. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, no, that's exactly the point. And I mean, one way to frame this is think about how hard it is to ramp vehicle production. And Elon's talked about you know you're only able to deliver the cars if literally every single component arrives and is in hand 
a national economy is kind of the same thing. There are lots and lots and lots and lots of inputs into a national economy. And those are in the form of not just like energy is a huge thing, but then also food. And one of the things that we take for granted here in the United States is that we have most of the resources that we need to drive our economy. We do have them here domestically if we needed them. Right now, we do outsource a lot of things. We import a lot of things from China. But as far as mineral resources, we have most of what we need. Um, energy resources, we really have most of what we need. Um, and then, you know, defensively with the way that our country is positioned in the world, we've got natural uh, geographical defenses that help us to... <clears throat> um, be stable, long-term global powers, most of the rest of the countries in the rest of the world do not have those luxuries. They operate under a different set of things that they have domestically that they can use to power their own economy. Um, and, and they require a lot of reliance on foreign actors in order to get the things that they need for their economies. Um, and then because they're smaller players, they don't have the leverage that the United States has in securing the things that they need. They are, you know, a fourth or fifth priority to a larger, more powerful country that sure, when things are great in China and they want to export you X, Y, or Z, they'll do that. But then if things in China start to deteriorate and they either don't want to or can't export those things that are absolutely critical inputs to your economy, your economy goes kaput a hundred percent. Um, and you know, if you get to, it doesn't take like a 20 or 30% reduction in your economy to start creating major local unrest that can then create a government overturn and, you know, you're in, in Venezuela point. or, you know, whatever. So Whoa. that's that's really fascinating to think about. It's also like, wouldn't that in uh, automatically put the countries like, say, the, the nation states or half the world's population that is not very well developed at all? Wouldn't they automatically get an advantage because of this? Because if because then they would be able to sort of like start from scratch with something that is like actually better than whatever we collapse with, if that makes any sense. And that, like how, and how do mm -hmm. we think about that? Like that might mean China, the United States and the companies that are reliant on these outside forces, they start collapsing. But then that half of the world that's not developed yet, who don't even know what, what, what the hell is going on here. What if they start taking advantage of the technologies that we are building or have built to actually build up their nation states using those like fundamentals, like the perfect example mm -hmm. I use for this is like the cell phone, the cell phone in, in rural China, you know, they never had to develop the landlines cause they can just use cell mm -hmm. phones. Like what if these nation states now utilize solar and batteries to like literally build out a self-sustaining energy system, bypassing coal power plants, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And what does that look like from a, from like a, from a world stage, you know? Yeah, I definitely think you'll see some winners who, you know, come out stronger. It's just like a major recession. Like a lot of companies go the way of the dirt. And then you see Amazon and Apple and a few companies that are able to execute survive it. and survive and then grow massively on the backside. Hmm. Wow. 
Ryan, any it, thoughts on we've been uh, dominating the discussion here? <laughs> any thoughts? Uh, um, not not really on this, no. Okay, go, Mike. Yeah, it just it just drives a sense of urgency towards hey, we gotta we gotta turn this global economy into a more localized economy as quickly as possible. And Tesla's already doing that with their cathode factories and things like that. And and you know, Elon talks a lot about how you know material has to be shipped from here to here to here. And it's just not only is it a lot of movement and, and cost, but also it's it's like a it's if any part of this goes wrong, like there's a shutdown in one country or something, then it just it just all gets halted or you know it and so like the best part is no part that to reduce the complexity of the economy is just is just ideal i think elon knows mm-hmm. this and and uh he's definitely working on going that direction especially with tesla bot i think i think it'll help a lot yeah i think i think the question that's proposed here by mm-hmm. elconar is also really interesting along those lines like what what would need to go epically bad so tesla can't develop anymore you know so is that a China US breakdown? Like what is that? You know, like is there anything that actually exists that would wouldn't allow them to develop anymore? I don't see anything on the near term that would rise to that scale. You know, I think Elon has been thinking about these things and talking about these things longer than any of us. And so he's been preparing, you know, why does he think it's really important to cut ten percent of his salaried staff when you know, at a time when other people were like, yeah, I think we're going to continue to grow. Um, you know, he's he's preparing both the balance sheet and the technology and the supply chain in any and every way that they can to be able to handle these things um, in the near term. Now, over the mid to long term, it, it's really hard to say. Like, you know, I think a nuclear conflict i mean i guess that's the one thing that is in the not too distant future that could be something that really disrupts a lot of things and it's such a black swan event which is kind of weird to call it a black swan event because i you know i don't see the likelihood of that happening as a black swan you know it's not like a one in a thousand chance i would say it's more like you know somewhere between one in ten and one in a hundred at this point um Yeah, that you don't you don't know what the externalities of that are. It depends on where those nuclear strikes take place, what happens, if any. Um, I don't think that those things would stop Tesla, but I you know I don't know what type of an impact that would have. Yeah, and I also do think that the sort of the the the, the caution and the approach that Elon has been taking to really ensure Tesla's survival, which I think was lessons learned from the psychotic nature of the model three ramp and other things that he's done as far as like how how far he pushes the envelope i think he's he's now equipped himself with the tools to really survive uh, epic downturns in economies epic conflicts like there's a toolbox there you know there's a toolbox that's been learned that will allow him and and the leadership to really navigate crazy stuff you know (laughs) Yeah. And just the pace of innovation that he's installed there, that that's, you know, that's one of the reasons that is so important because the pace of innovation is the exact thing that you need to adapt to a rapidly changing environment. And Tesla is uniquely positioned to adapt to a rapidly changing environment more than any government, more than any other Fortune 500 company. And so as far as, you know, what am I afraid of in a 
potentially deteriorating global macro environment. I want my money to be in the hands of the best player comparatively to all the other players. Um, and that is far and away Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, the boring company. You know, yeah. no one else is going to be able to make the on the fly adjustments that are necessary to continue to thrive and win in that environment. Yeah. It's like, it, it's somebody just said, well said Hans. There you go. Little props for you right there, Hans. Um, but I, I agree. It's like, and almost like if, if global conflict, like if there would, would have that sort of conflict where it becomes evident or, or, uh, people start to realize that Tesla is like a legitimate investment for your like say like gold like i don't know if this is a crazy thought but in in times of like crazy conflict or or a lot of um um you know uh, uncertainty like really drastic uncertainty gold seems to do well because it's a known asset people know that it's it's not going to lose its value it's needed et cetera. Et cetera. Mm-hmm. could tesla become that in that case well like holy shit like this is crazy uh you know I don't know if maybe there's a complexity there with Elon being a human being that could die, <laughs> you know, like yeah. I don't want to get morbid, but like, is that, could that be the thing that's going to prevent a test that will become a safe haven in, in a, in a, when there is that sort of conflict, because there are, there are a lot of things going for it that theoretically could make that company thrive in that environment, especially as compared to other companies. But is, is, is the whole human aspect of it, the reason why it would still be, it would still succumb to the forces of uncertainty and chaos. You know, yeah. I think it would in the short term for people um, like at the beginning of whatever the thing is, everyone's just going to be freaking out and everyone's going to be pulling money out of things. But to me, it's better than gold. It's like intelligent gold. Like what if your gold could make the smartest possible decisions about mm. how to secure its future? Yeah. Well, that's, you know companies that will be able to continue to operate at a profit in a landscape where very few other companies can generate positive free cash flow and not only do that but then expand and eat market share there will be a time when the market doesn't see that doesn't believe it but eventually it will show up in the financials and become so clear that the market will have no choice but to be like holy shit this is like the best safe haven out there at this moment in time. Um, so, yeah. And I wonder how much like, uh, like the, like price earnings ratios would come down during that environment. Like, yeah, it might be the best, the best like place to invest, but is that uh, price earnings multiple of two versus everyone else's 0.5? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So what does that look like? Yeah. I feel like we just went through a really good, like, uh, uh, exercise of understanding, Tesla's value in a real crappy environment, in a sense, yeah. or at least thinking see, about what are the variables, you know. Oh well, yeah. To be to be fair, if that if that did all happen, I don't think Tesla stock would be what I was worrying about. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, true. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's a great point. But I think also the point that you made, Farzad, on like what is what are the multiples that we're talking about? Because you know, right now we're at somewhere around a 40, 50 PE, a forward PE, I believe. Um, you know, if, if we do head into a macro environment where there's a lot of instability, 
that could still come down a long ways. Mm. Um, but the, you know, the nice benefit is, hey, if, if they're continuing to grow deliveries by 40, 50, 60% per year, then that, you know, the rate of compression on that PE ratio is still pretty high. And so you don't have to wait very long before the earnings growth will counteract PE compression. So, yeah. Okay. Great discussion. That was so good. Man, that was such a such a good topic there. Um, I do have a couple comments too that that came through that that were interesting. Um, I think uh, DRK has been dropping some cool comments down. Our biggest issue is that we insist on putting everything and uh, one in a camp category. So the more that happens and less uh, gets done, the real downside to being tribal, even if you're not from Africa. So that was kind of a, a response to something else that was said uh, above. Uh, along the comments of developing countries, uh, Africa has huge young population, same as China 20, 30 years ago. And that was a major catalyst for fast growth. Problem is that China was really uh, uh, homogeneous. Africa is not wars and tribal conflicts, which I think is a phenomenally excellent point. Mm -hmm. uh, and something to to really look out for. If there's anyone from uh, Africa in the comments, I would love to hear your perspective of that because one of my thoughts has been for a long time that I think Africa has a, a gigantic amount of potential, but I have no, I'm so unfamiliar with its culture. Like obviously it's a humongous continent. Like I talk yep. about Africa as if it's like, you know, like the point here, it's like, it's like a million different kinds of people, <laughs> you know? So that's so, very interesting. Yeah. I, I actually lived in three different countries in Africa. Oh, man. Uh, well, four. I didn't live in Senegal, but I spent a few months in Senegal. I lived for several years in Burundi. I lived for a year in Kenya and a year for, in Tanzania. Um, so I definitely, if anyone is actually from Africa in the comments, hop on. You, you know a lot more about this than I do. Um, but I do have, and I was a kid too. So, you know, my, my exposure and my understanding of the environment then um, would definitely be different than having lived there for five years as, as an adult. Um, but the definite challenge, yeah, that he mentioned was homogeneity. Like China, I mean, China is not homogenous, but it's more homogenous than Africa. Africa is much more tribal. Um, and then just culturally, there's something to be said for an ideological cultural framework that, you know, in the West that we share so much culture and history and ideas that it makes it easy to build up a, a society that interacts well. Um, Africa doesn't have that to the same level. And so that, it definitely makes it hard. There's, there's some challenges there. Um, I think that in a connected world, like the ability of ideas and memes and cultural norms to spread across the continent, not just on a country by country basis at this point in history is a lot greater than it ever has been in the past. And so there is potential for um, development in Africa to happen at a much larger scale uh, with much more positive interactions between different nations, uh, different tribes than 
than has ever been in the past. So I'm excited for the possibilities, but it's definitely not a, um, just the fact that there's a large young population in Africa is not necessarily that they're going to experience the same type of growth that China saw over the last 20 to 30 years. Yeah. So are you suggesting that maybe that when they connect to the internet more, um, mm-hmm. maybe through Starlink and things like that, they'll be able they're, to... They're already connected to the internet. Just the cell phone oh. networks there. I mean, just like he talked about in China, that happened in Africa. And so you can be out in the middle of, you know, pretty dang near the bush um, in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing there but mud huts and they're walking around on cell phones. Um, and so they are connected to the internet. Now the quality of the internet connection that they have is pretty poor and that will continue to improve. Um, but yeah, people are, people are interconnected pretty well, uh, from, you know, North to South, East to West there. Yeah. I'm I'm sure I've seen a project. I can't remember where it was, but Mm -hmm. uh, I think they're starting to try and build, um, smart cities, uh, with like, high-speed internet and kind of universities and things like that. So mm-hmm. it's definitely something they're already working on. Um, it would be interesting to see yeah. how they get on uh, with it. But, uh, yeah, they're definitely making advancements anyway. DRK's point about language barriers is super important in that, I mean, China was the same way. There were tons and tons and tons of dialects there in China. Um so it's not something that can't be overcome, but very, very many l- small communities are isolated just on a language basis that they, there are very few people in that community who speak a language that's spoken by anyone else around. Now, with the availability of information on the internet, you know, people can learn languages, um, but th- that's definitely a, a hill to climb. Or maybe even better, just with the advancements of machine learning translation, maybe maybe that will help um bridge bridge the cultural gaps if there's enough data about whatever language that they speak to create a useful language model for their language you know if it's spoken by 10,000 people and that's it how much data is there on on what that language is to create a translation yeah, with current technology, you need a lot of data and a lot of translated data to be able to do that. But maybe in the future, we'll be better at doing it with small mm-hmm. amounts of data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think what what I need to do from my perspective when I think about like the like the potential of the continent of Africa is that I like that 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 variable of uh, sort of how how many shared languages and uh, cultures there are is is is. It's it's a massive, massive, very diverse place. So what I really need to start thinking about it is like maybe the best analogy is like the actual continents, right? And continent of Asia, you have very, very diverse cultures as well. So you have the Middle East, you have China, you got you know Russia, you have all these different India, you have very, 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 very diverse cultures. So I think I think it's almost like okay, how well are they playing together, you know? And how well mm-hmm. how, are they able to sort of work together and maybe use that as an analogy for uh, uh, Africa in a sense and think about it that way too. It's like, okay, like you have very, very drastic cultures in, in that. Ent- it's, it's such a huge place. Mm-hmm. It's obvious that yeah. they have very different people, right? So um, awesome. 
Really, re- yeah, really great discussion. I think it, we might use this for like a jumping point for for a further one because this is like a very interesting one. How does Tesla, Elon, Twitter, like how does this work into the, the development of uh, of these places? And is that sort of like the 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 next stage of the potential of these companies in helping develop these areas potentially? And how does that entire movement? Uh, towards that, how does that impact those that world? But um, anyway, mm-hmm. I definitely want to move to uh, Ryan's topic next. Uh, Ryan, uh, lead us with your topic. Let us know what you want to talk about. I'm going to walk away for 30 seconds, but I can yeah. still hear you because I drank too much coffee. So I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, Ryan. No, you, you can get kick, kick us off. No yeah. Problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think my um, topic was just on. Uh, the kind of new newer battery technology. Uh, there's a video I seen earlier. Uh, it was something that CATL was working on in China, and uh, it was uh, LFP batteries. But it seemed to be um, obviously that's the more affordable option. Um, but it seemed they they were getting more range out of it as well. So it's just to see if uh, you had any thoughts on uh, kind of that going forward. Uh, for using that, I think the, uh, they do supply Tesla, but it's not not much currently. Uh, it's mostly, I think LG and uh, Panasonic, but they do supply Tesla a little bit. So mm-hmm. it'd be interesting to see if Tesla move forward with that as well. Uh, uh, I'm not sure on the exact information of it. I, I had it off earlier, but I've, I've lost mm-hmm. the batteries information are, on it. Batteries are kind of tricky because there's a lot of early like lab scale results that look really promising. But then when you try to scale it up to, to millions of batteries, it just doesn't work out. And so it's like, it seems like less than 1% of actual early stage um, breakthroughs actually make it to final production. So I don't know what stage of production that is. I follow the limiting factor um, for just like, he, he covers the, the most promising things and, um, those are the kind of things that are most likely to affect Tesla's battery choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I definitely expect um, Tesla to, if they've got better batteries than any of the batteries that Tesla has access to in China, um, they'll definitely add it into what they're purchasing as long as CATL can supply that to them. Um, they can definitely get a bigger contract with Tesla than they can get in many other places. Uh, but then, you know, the the question will be whether or not the Chinese government really wants to allocate that supply to companies like Xpeng and BYD. Um, you know, their, their government will, I, I think it would be extremely unlikely for the Chinese Communist Party not to put their thumb on the scale to make sure that Chinese domestic battery or uh, car production uh, gets the everything that they need from from Chinese companies. So I'm yeah, very a- interested to see yeah what like what that technology. I heard uh, Chamath mention something about. CATL making some Gen 3 breakthroughs in their battery chemistry. And so, um, yeah, I haven't seen, just like Mike said, I follow um, the limiting factor in Jordan. And he hasn't mentioned anything on that yet. So I'll definitely be watching to see if he 
gives us a breakdown of you know what those developments are and and how promising they are. Yeah, I think it was a range of about six hundred miles, um, and it was saying you could charge it from zero to eighty percent in something like five ten minutes or something. So it seems quite promising. But as you said, it, it's probably mm-hmm. a different matter scaling the, yeah. the actual exactly. um, process. So. Yep. Yeah, it's just, it's yeah. interesting to see though the the advancements in the batteries. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it may still be uh, just unable to actually put into manufacturing. Yeah, most <laughs> most of the news is too early to actually get excited about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but the Chinese are definitely investing heavily. Like they they know that this is going to be a big part of what determines their success as a nation moving forward. And so they're making all the necessary investments of time, energy, and resources into succeeding there um, really at a a much higher level than anyone in the United States is doing apart from uh, Tesla. So, Yeah. Yeah, I think the wait and see approach. Sorry, go ahead, Ryan. Yeah, I think think I read um, they were extending the, EV incentive as well, the, the tax um, incentive for buying EVs in China. So I think that would affect Tesla as well. It, it wasn't just limited to um, Chinese companies. So that could be promising going forward. They're definitely going all in with uh, EVs. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the wait and see approach is probably best um, only because, like it has been discussed, the the scaling and having a technology are two, two very different beasts and i think i think tesla so far has proven to be the leader when it comes to the technology of batteries right so i think the question becomes even though those that that company has shown that they potentially have this technology ready is this a 5000 cars a year vehicle like battery technology or is this a 500000 cars a year technology Right. And how, how far away is it? How how close is it? I think I think the other question that's related to that, too, is I'm wondering if if those two things are uh, in two like two different forks on the road. So thinking like, OK, so um, as Tesla grows, are there going to be certain uh, chemistries that are going to allow them to crank out 20,000 cars, 20, 20 million cars a year? But it limits uh, the type of battery they can make, right? So those 20 million cars a year means that they're bound to 30 minute charges and a certain efficiency. Whereas, uh, say a company that decides to do 1 million cars a year or half a million cars a year, they could have far more advanced batteries, right? But the, their scaling is limited to that number. And I'm wondering, do those two things converge, right? Like, will the will the company with the largest volume have the best uh, the best performing battery, or are they going to be separated? And I think that's going to be super fascinating to see. Um, bec- and I could potentially see that happening, though. I could mm-hmm. because because twenty million cars a year plus, you're going to need a very cheap freaking battery, <laughs> and you're going to need something yeah. that's going to be able to be made super 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 quickly at a very cost efficient manner. So does that automatically mean the best performing battery? So just another mm. another piece of, yeah. Plus, considering that right now we own our cars and we have to wait for them to charge, but in the future, we might just have such a good robotaxi network everywhere that, that you just 
if, if it ever needs to charge, like you're on a really long road trip, you just transfer it to another car and keep going. You know, you don't have to ever wait. Right. Like we won't care how long it takes to charge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. I mean, um, you've already seen that Farzad with, you know, LFP versus the high yeah. nickel batteries that, you know, your LFP cells are lower performance, but they're cheaper. Uh, I don't know that they're any faster to manufacture, but they're definitely a lower cost battery and work a lot better. And I think that you'll see that continue. And then, um, yeah, whether or not we can get sodium-based batteries so that we can, I mean, it looks like based on what I was seeing from Jordan that uh, the sodium technologies have pretty limited, you basically you're trading a lithium bottleneck for a nickel bottleneck again. And since nickel's Mm -hmm. kind of already a, a big deal um, that, you know, sodium may not be a thing that allows us to scale any faster than getting off of, uh, you know, than LFP or something of that nature. So, yeah, I, I think there will be a lot of chemistries that end up actually being pretty workable and we'll need a lot of different ones in order to really reach massive scale. Yeah. Speaking I think of, it'd be great to have Jordan on, on one of these so we can it, pepper him with amazing. all the questions. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to work talks, on that. Yeah. Jordan, if you're listening to this, bro, come on. <laughs> on. <laughs> Go ahead, Mike. Uh, he talks a lot about bottlenecks, and one of the longest bottlenecks is the getting a new mine permitted. Um, it, takes, it can take like eight years or something, um, at least in the U.S. Um, and so... And so, like, I wonder if Tesla will will get into that because, like, when you when you look at the graphs of like how much batteries we want to have versus how much we'll actually be able to make with, with yeah. like current supply trajectories, like going as fast as possible, there's like this major gap um, over the next I don't know five or six years. And so, I wonder if Tesla can automate more of that process to get the eight years down to one year or something. I mean, it sounds crazy, but but like Tesla can do stuff like that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think if, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say that is one thing that, you know, if we do get into any serious global conflicts, I think that there will be pressure put on like, hey, if we need raw materials and the thing that's getting in the way is government regulations and permitting, like that stuff will go out the window if it's really important. Um, You know, I don't know that we're going to get into a situation like that, but. Yeah. I think the race I think the race to create as much supply as humanly possible is going to allow someone to become a big winner in this whole thing. And to me it does look like Tesla is really trying to position itself to be not just a and this has been talked about in the community many for many many years but I think I think in the next 5 10 years it's going to become obvious which one of the players is really going to become a supplier of batteries for the for the industry versus a buyer and that buyer of batteries, right? And to me, it seems like Tesla is becoming the supplier in the long term, is going to become a supplier mm-hmm. instead of a net buyer because of just uh, how much time and money and resources they're really investing in scaling. Master plan part three, you know, he's that Elon's talked about before, which we haven't seen yet. That to me, I think is the like, groundwork to really uh, for Tesla to become that net supplier versus a net consumer of batteries, um, but I think yeah, it's just it's just mm-hmm. interesting to think about as well along those lines. Um, it kind of leads right into one of Hans's topics, the one about um, Tesla investing in raw materials for not just itself but for the whole industry. 
Did you want to? Did you want to hit that, Hans? Sure, we can talk about that for a minute. I um, yeah, that was you know just from a high level standpoint. Tesla's obviously going to be investing and in making moves to expand their raw material supply. Um, you know, lots of speculation. Maybe they'll buy Albemarle. Maybe they'll purchase a controlling interest. And Albemarle is one of the uh, world's largest miners of lithium. Um, so, you know, in some of those scenarios, as Tesla increases their supply, especially then if they go ahead and get into direct lithium extraction, they have a good technology for direct lithium extraction from clay or brines or whatever. Um, you know, should they, it, so it's just a, a philosophical question if we're trying to accelerate the world's, the advent of sustainable energy or the transition uh, to sustainable energy, should Tesla do enough to support Cure their own supply, or should they really try and create a supply chain that is capable of meeting the demand of all of the industry players, whether it be automakers or energy companies or you know other? Because you know, Elon has said specifically that they only intend to be about ten percent of you know the total demand for new car sales in the year twenty thirty. Um, so they expect for there to be 90% of autos sold by other companies. So, yeah, I guess that is just the the open question. What do you all think? It might just be that if Tesla is helping other, other mining companies, that those mining companies will just never want to sell more than, I don't know, 50 or 60% of their, of their output to Tesla. They'd want to diversify their their list of customers um a little bit and and so by by getting what tesla needs they've also helped everyone else get what they need mm-hmm. and and that also goes with their mission you know they they want to accelerate the you know transition and so it it probably makes more sense to just l- let everyone get as much access to batteries as possible as long as they're using them well mm-hmm. you know instead of trying to do it all themselves that sounds a little bit slower and harder yeah 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 I definitely think they'd prioritise their own vehicles, but um, they definitely would um, outsource the material, uh, uh, any excess that they couldn't ramp up in their own company. Um, they would definitely sell it to uh, the other manufacturers that are looking for it. I, I think they'll definitely need to get into mining, though, uh, mm. f- for the rate that they're wanting to uh, progress. Yeah, I think that the mining piece, the the point that Mike made just now about miners becoming not um, being incentivized to have multiple customers, I think is really the key driver to a lot of this because so I'll give an example from my previous life. So before Tesla, I worked at a pet food distributor. It's not, you know, lithium, but it's a it's a commodity, you know, like pets got to eat. You know, you, you kind of it's, it was a very interesting uh, it's kind of like an analogy to like a like a commodity type of a company because it is food and mm-hmm. you would be surprised how badly people want to keep their pets alive. There was a uh, I forget where this was from, but this is like there was a um, there was some sort of survey that was done. I can't remember if the company did or somebody else did it. And uh, it basically alluded to the fact that 60 uh, percent of, of pet owners would prioritize their pet's uh, feeding before their own child. 
which was like very interesting. Like, you know, in a case of an emergency, who would you want to feed first? And like 60% of correspondents said my pet versus their children, which was like mind blowing. But anyway, that's, that's a, that's a story for a different day as to like, yeah, crazy stuff. But what was interesting about that is that there was a uh, relationship where the distributor was becoming uh, really the main player in, in supplying food to uh, pet stores and, you know, pet food stores and all that stuff. But th there was a certain company that was really becoming a dominant buyer from the distributor, okay? And I won't mention the company, but mm -hmm. um, think e-commerce, okay? Uh, a, a, a dominant buyer. And the, and the com company was getting sort of a little bit worried about the fact that if that company decided to say go direct to the supplier, like direct from the actual pet food manufacturers, then that distributor is gonna be in big trouble because a large percentage of that, the sales just disappear, right? Mm -hmm. And so what that taught me is that if you are a company that's uh, too reliant on one customer, that if that customer decides to either move away or something changes in the market that that where that company drastically starts to reduce their buying from you, that becomes a gigantic uh, uh, drag on your performance, right? So I think Ooh. miners is, are going to be heavily incentivized to not rely on one company being their primary buyer, in this case, Tesla and a miner, right? They're gonna mm -hmm. look to sell as much as humanly possible to other players, which I think creates a certain environment where uh, Tesla will only have access to X amount of um, of raw materials, which I think why the question of Tesla becoming a mining company at some point becomes a bigger discussion because if they really want to hit the goals that they want to hit, they're going to have to tap into a supply market that will not exist at that point because those miners are not going to want to rely on Tesla too much. Yeah, this you know? is already driving a lot of the dynamics of the the supply chain for we'll just use lithium specifically um that you know tesla's wanting to say hey albemarle i want to increase you know the number of tons of lithium that i'm going to get from you in the year 2025 or 2026 whatever it is and they're they're looking currently at their things and saying yeah that would be like 30 or 40 percent of our total output in that year no, we're not going to do that because you're the only customer who's willing to give us contracts that far out in that high of volume. We don't know where the other customers are going to come from. Sure, you can just say, yeah, build it and they'll come. But we're a business that operates with strict rigor and discipline. And so until we have interest from other customers who are willing to buy that remainder of supply so that you don't go above whatever percentage that is, 20, 30 percent, uh, 10, you know, I don't know what their specific limitation is on the size of a single customer. Um, they're not building, they're not investing in building out those additional mines and the additional supply that they'll need. Uh, and so that's kind of the the tension that the raw material supply chain is in right now. And so that's one of the arguments for Tesla to buy a controlling stake in a company like Albemarle is say, you know, whether they want to buy them outright or if they just want to buy a, a controlling stake, say, you know what, you're not growing fast enough. You're the 
person that's in the position that needs to make the investments that are necessary. It's not like the investments are that large in comparison to, you know, Tesla's balance sheet. And so they can fund those growth. You know, they just don't want to do it by themselves. They want to do it with people who know how to do that. And so, you know, I think there's a, a real argument to be made where Tesla should you know, purchase a controlling stake in a company like Albemarle, go ahead and make the investment, say, you know, in the short term, Tesla may take up to 80% of the supply that you're producing. But the long term goal is to make so much that we get back to supplying the global market with uh, with more materials, but there might be a short term spike where no one else has ramped up their production enough to keep Tesla to you know only twenty thirty percent of the of the total production of that company. Yeah, yeah. I think that would have to be like written into a contract too. Like it has to be part of that. Like if if say and it has to be a ten year plan or or a fifteen year plan where Tesla promises to buy X tons of supply from you. But by year 10, if, if we're going to get to 20 million cars a year, the miners actually that they're thinking to deal with, they're going to help them get to 40 million cars a year so they can guarantee that Tesla becomes less and less of a percentage of their total. Like that has to be in the contract. And otherwise, I don't think the miners will go for it. You know, like yeah. they would have to like somehow like we promise to help you get to that level. And we promise mm-hmm. to become a smaller percentage of your overall sales uh, in some way. Otherwise, I, I just don't see how that 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 works. You know, like, because mm-hmm. then if, if Tesla just is like, okay, so you know what, screw it, we're going to do our own mining. Like, it might be another, like, I don't know if Panasonic, I know there was some friction with mm-hmm. Panasonic lately because of the sort of, like, Tesla becoming a primary buyer. And Panasonic saying, well, okay, well, if you start making your own batteries, what the hell? Like, like now you're going to go away and you're, like, 80% on my sales. That's messed up, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, it's interesting. And like, I feel like that's the kind of thought process that, that, that uh, investors have to really think about when it comes to really the next stage of the company's growth. Because it's those sort of dynamics that are going to drive uh, how Tesla's going to perform. But the cool thing about Elon on the cup, excuse me, and the company is that they're master negotiators. They know mm-hmm. how to pull this stuff off. Yeah. You know, so it's going to be interesting how they're going to craft those deals in the long term. Well, and yeah. they're never afraid to bring something in house if they cannot get to exactly. a deal that works. And so if they have to get into mining, they 100% will get into mining. And they can always use that as a card in their negotiation, say, you know, if you can't, if we can't come to a deal that the terms work for both of us, that's okay. I'll go do this without you. Yeah. Any other thoughts, Ryan, Mike? Yeah, no. Not on this topic, no. Okay. Cool. Um, let's. Uh, are you guys comfortable with a little bit Q and A from our from our comment section? Ooh, yeah. sounds fun. You guys cool? All right. If you have any uh, questions in the comments, drop them. We'd love to uh, tackle them. We'll give you the perfect answer, and you will invest all your money based on that answer. I'm just kidding. Please don't do that. <laughs> Not investment advice, any of this. But definitely uh, drop your uh, question in the comments. Uh, there, were, there were a couple of things that came up here from uh, the t- pet discussion. Um, uh, <laughs> Donald, uh, what? Farzad? Feed the pets first? I know. That was my reaction, too. Um, there was a comment here. Pets only show love. Kids will mess your life, so I can relate. <laughs> so, you know, maybe maybe uh, Lufti voted on that survey uh, for the pet. 
so that was pretty interesting. I think that Indonesia uh, piece, Indonesia said Tusk in mine. You know, I think that Indonesia sort of relationship that's being built, I think, is um, sort of a precursor to some of these discussions we're having. Because, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but does, don't, don't they have the best lithium in the world or something? One of the one of the best or the easiest access to a raw material. I forget which one it was, but. Um, that's a very interesting one. Um, oh, and disclaimer from Lufti, I don't have kids. So yeah, that makes sense. Okay, <laughs> there you go. Uh, all right, uh, first question from Damon. Thank you, Damon, for the question. Should Tesla limit their orders to FSD only to help with demand? Do, what does that mean exactly? I think it would make I'm guessing sense demand of FSD? Yeah, like... It'd be good for the margin, the short term, I guess. But I don't, I don't know if they would do that. So should they? Should they not? I'm not sure. Will they? I highly doubt it. I don't think that they want to increase the number of people in the FSD pipeline at this point in time yet. Um, I think that they, you know. They won't do anything to increase FSD demand until after um, they have gone wide release on the beta. And that's yeah, so just I my think, personal read. Yeah, Damon, just to clarify for us, so only accept new orders that cho choose FSD. So I'm guessing it's not really a demand question, but it's like a maximization of margin, uh, it sounds like. So like only fill orders if you have purchased FSD to get your car faster. I think that's what that's what the question is. I think he's saying only accept new orders if the person, like basically make FSD a mandatory option that you can't purchase a Tesla without purchasing FSD. Oh, okay, and okay, I understand okay. why he's saying that because, you know, wait times are so long. And so you could decrease your demand by saying, yeah, the only way you can buy this is you get it with the FSD option. Um, I, like I said, I don't think that they want more people in the FSD queue than are currently there until after it goes to wide release. Um, I thought I thought Damon's point was don't allow existing car owners to add FSD to their car. And I'm like, what? No, I, I think I think he's just talking about like only allow people to get a delivery of their car if they have FSD added. And I don't know if we're quite there yet. You know, like it's still in beta, for example, if it was out of beta, it'd be another story. Um, and only if demand for it was high enough that they could sell every car they make still. Yep. Ryan, what do you think? Yeah, so it, it would definitely make the margin better in the short term, but there's probably no need to do it, really. Um, it, you just don't know what the demand's going to be like for that, so there's no point prioritizing it, I don't think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, there's a certain trade-off. Like, yeah, you, you might get more cash today, but, but in the long run, if the price of FSD package mm -hmm. goes up, it makes sense for... Yeah people to not buy it as much so that they buy it later when it's higher price. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's the key there, Mike, is that they they strongly believe in the value of FSD and until they ship FSD wide release and the public perception agrees with Tesla's internal perception about what the value of FSD is, they don't want to sell a bunch of FSD options to people at a price that they feel like is at a significant discount than the value that they see in the product. Yeah. yeah. That's, uh, I have nothing to say. 
<laughs> do you think once it does uh, become finalised, um, the price will get hiked right up? What, what was that? Like when when uh, full self driving is uh, completed, do you think they'll increase the price dramatically? I think that yeah, like if if we define completed as in FSD beta is rolled out to pretty much anyone who has paid for FSD, I, I do think that the yeah the price point will increase, or they'll just go to a straight monthly subscription, and it'll be a you know relatively significant monthly subscription. Yeah, yeah, I definitely think it'd be at least at least some price increase uh, when it's out of beta, um, but I think the real price increase will be when it's when the robo taxi system is up and going, that will be, and I think it'll also roll out as a beta, you know, like it'll roll out limited, limited robo taxi system in certain areas, maybe, or certain people, mm -hmm. but yeah. Next question. Uh, do you think Tesla will ever hit a point where none of the current issues are no longer an issue? And what happens after that? That's an interesting question. Um, and I think, so just to give my two cents, I think, I think, um, the only one that I can think of that has been sort of like, it depends what your threshold is of issue, right? Like that's kind of, I think about it. So I, I think of issue as uh, it's a more than acceptable percentage of things that are happening in the company uh, are tied to that issue. So like early on was like panel gaps, like panel gaps was a legitimate issue. Like the early model S's are a disaster when it comes to panel gaps. And now it's like much more in line with the rest of the uh, sort of market. Um, service, I would say, in my opinion, because I, maybe I'm biased because I come because I literally worked in Tesla service supply chain for four years. I would say it's gotten to the point now, in my opinion, that is at an acceptable level. And of course, there are areas where people are still having issues with service. But then I would challenge them to compare that to that experience with a gas car anywhere else in the market. Right. So I would say like, uh, I think over time, in my opinion, uh, Tesla is going to have a, ho a host of different challenges that are going to be completely different to what they are now. And it's going to be hard to understand what those are going to be. But my gut tells me it's going to be mostly due to meeting customer demand <laughs> and, and full self-driving and full self-driving and getting that adoption mm -hmm. up. Um, but that's how I think about it. Uh, what are your thoughts? like about yeah. bottlenecks oh. isn't my internet working yeah yeah i think i think um, there's always going to be yeah. problems there um they, they will change over time but i, de I definitely the demand issue is going to be there for a while um mm -hmm. it's, it's going to take them a long time to scale up to where they need to be to meet demand because eventually they'll, they'll, they will start dropping the prices um and that will just increase demand even more. So I think that's going to be an issue for a long time. Yeah, I that's mean, it's a good problem. Yeah, that getting to to volume production is the, you know, the thing for the foreseeable future. And I, yeah, I do think that eventually they will get past that point. Uh, what do the issues look like after, you know, volume production of both energy storage? solar products and vehicles. Um, I, my guess is by that point, the difficult thing will be keeping the company cohesive and focused on whatever the next thing is. Um, we'll, 
become, I mean, it, it will probably turn into like a general electric type conglomerate company at some point where they're just doing so many different things um, that, yeah, trying to maintain the cohesiveness of that company, uh, the leanness and the pace of innovation, you know, at that scale will be one of the biggest challenges in my mind. I agree 100%. That's a great point. Ensuring that the culture like uh, lives on through those through that uh, expansion of scope. Next one, uh, real quick. Uh, uh, what was the uh, Ryan and Mike? You want to give y'all's background real quick? Um, back. Oh, I guess my background. Um, I study economics in in a university, and um, I make like systems for companies you know like i set up like a system where you know the communication works better or that the flow of information is more automated stuff like that okay right yeah uh, yeah i'm an electrician uh, just uh, domestic so i work in residential kind of houses and things like that. i used i used to work in uh, commercial but i've uh, since COVID, I've moved into domestic, uh, most mostly working in empty properties now, so it's pretty isolating. <laughs> it's <laughs> not, not not the best, but <laughs> yeah. nice. Hans, did you want to give yours as well, just just because? <laughs> yeah, so I have a degree in mechanical engineering. I haven't done a whole lot of that. I did a little bit of spec engineering for some utility cables for a while, um, and then I have I was basically the operations manager for a small wholesale company. And then I was the general manager for a cleaning company for uh, two and a half years, maybe three. Awesome. I worked at McDonald's, <laughs> which is a great job. Honestly, it's like, it's a needed job. It's an important yep. one. Um, all right, let's do a couple more. Do you think, uh, so Donald, uh, do you think this new, camera contract with high resolution for the cars will make it a harder processing job for FSD with the hardware version three or four need to change as well. How do you guys think about that? I have a couple of theories about that. I mean, I, if nothing else changes, then yeah, higher resolution means more processing powers needed. It might, if they might roll out the FSD computer four along with the high resolution cameras for that reason. Yeah, I think this is a great question for James Daum. I know that they're, you know, running it's just really hard to gauge at this point because you don't know how much of the processing and compute that is being eaten up by current hardware is just a product of them in full research and development mode, even in the cars that they've got so much, you know running something in shadow mode um, or, you know, how much optimization is left in the efficiency of the code that's on them. I think it's definitely a possibility, you know, it's a significantly increased data stream that's coming in. Can they, can they do some compression on that? Possibly. Um, I think that the biggest difference that the increased resolution cameras will do is really for that downrange um, you know, moving at a high rate of speed, you need to be able to see detailed picture of something that's much farther away from you than you do at a low rate of speed. And so um, I think that's going to be 
kind of a big deal. I that's one of my questions is whether or not they can really solve that in version eleven and beyond with one stack to rule them all. Can they, you know, can they achieve the downrange vision that they need to operate a car at 85, 90 mile an hour? Yeah, yeah. and not just not just for highway, but also for um for city streets because they need to be able to see lane lines like if, if there's a if there's a merge coming up or or an exit coming up it needs to see mm. far enough and, and determine those lane lines so they can sell oh i need to get over so i can turn off right here or or whatever mm-hmm. so lots of reasons why it, they would need to see farther yeah yeah i think that i think the the nice thing about it is regardless of what they choose to upgrade the swap's going to be so straightforward and so easy for them to do that yeah. whatever they decide to come out with, it's a non-issue. So great. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's the Tesla ethos: make everything better always, you know. And if they end up with a yep. much, much uh, higher resolution camera, they're going to have a much more powerful GPU or uh, whatever computer hardware piece that's going to be able to process that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Good. Oh, sorry. I thought somebody wanted to say something. All right. Um, all right. Let's make this the uh, the last question. So. Uh, so we can, uh, uh, whoever needs to use the bathroom can go use the bathroom, even though I did already, <laughs> uh, and go eat some lunch or dinner. Uh, the thought of Twitter, uh, Matt asks, the thought of Twitter being used for transferring payments and voting for direct democracy sounds amazing. How would you guys have a company efficiently verify people? And I think that's like the the, the question that's ruling the whole uh, Twitter acquisition. Uh, if you guys were Elon, how would you do it? That's such a good question. So I think the the method that seems the most efficient in my mind is not necessarily verifying the initial person. It's just constantly monitoring user behavior. And so, you know, I think I would just default, okay, you can get on the platform and then I'm going to monitor your behavior. If you have bot-like behavior, I'm going to just shut you down that fast. Because when you think about like YouTube and Twitter, the bot-like comments and things, they seem pretty easy to understand. Um, like, what, what are those patterns? Why, you know, why does this IP address send so many messages? Or, you know, it's always BTC this or crypto that. Um, so I think those things should be relatively easy to develop some profiles around. And I know it's not as easy as it sounds. Um, and the, I mean, I think really the most promising thought on that is if you combine that with just a disincentive to act like a bot. And so if you've got payments integrated and you can do, you know, it's going to cost you a half of a penny to send a tweet. Well, for any normal human, that's not going to be a big deal or you know even if you want to adjust that on a sliding scale in different geographies for people who live on lower income that's fine too um but to where you know you're being significantly penalized for sending a thousand messages in a few minutes versus a person who's going to be sending 10 um so i think yeah those types of things make the most sense to me yeah, I could also see them utilizing cameras. You know, a lot of phones have cameras, laptops have cameras, and and having like a model of someone's face that's automatically created when they register or something, they kind of turn their face and it it captures a 3D model of what their face should look like. And then 
And then if they're doing something bot-like, it'll request that they verify themselves again uh, mm -hmm. just by turning on their camera for a second, you know, turning their head, and there you go, they're verified again. Something yeah. like that. Ryan, what do you think? Yeah, I've, I've used the apps before that have got that technology. It definitely seems like a, a simple way of kind of verifying that you are human just mm -hmm. through the use of a camera. I don't know if there would be a way to bypass that for a bot, so... Yeah. I mean, possibly, but <laughs> never know. Um, but definitely, uh, I think that'd be the best approach, probably. Yeah, I think I think I think it's going to have to be a uh, like a, a multi-varied approach. You know, it's 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 not just one lever that can be pulled. I think the microtransactional aspect of it sounds like a good idea. It's a it's a decentivizer for a lot, but it does potentially bring up the issue of like. Again, like limiting certain demographics from joining it because they're like they mm -hmm. so I have to pay for free speech. That's kind of messed up, right? So that, that's interesting. Um, so that's one. Uh, I think that the like phone numbers, like like using phone numbers where you can actually like like call and verify. It's an interesting one. Um, I think that the fact that OpenAI is already working and ha they have a very advanced natural language sort of AI that they can leverage that technology that says, okay, like, look at, look at these tweets. What's your percentage mm -hmm. confidence that this is natural language, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that's a very interesting variable that they can use. Um, the camera technology obviously makes a lot of sense, but I, I do again wonder like how, how does the whole, like, are we now saying that uh, we're no longer going to be anonymous, right? Are we now saying like, if you want to be a Twitter user, uh, now you have to be a real person, kind of like Facebook, right? You have to be a real person to really be, I guess technically mm -hmm. you have to be a real person. I guess maybe not, but but now we're saying like you have to be a real person to use our services. You can no longer be anonymous, right? So it kind of brings in this other variable for it. Um, I do Elon, think that, yeah, go ahead. Elon mentioned that uh, in his last interview, or no, was it the call with Twitter? And, and he said like, he said, maybe Twitter will know who you are. But you're you're still anonymous to all the users of Twitter, so you can still maintain mm -hmm. some uh, some anonymity. Mm -hmm. And I do like to comment that was a uh, sort of uh, somebody mentioned here, bold down ah. That might be fine for actual voting, but just for tweeting, that sounds very uh, non-utopian. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think I think there's different layers, kind of to like what was discussed. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I'm, I'm not sure I was just thinking. I'm okay with non-utopian. I think that the pursuit of utopia <laughs> is one of the greatest creators of dystopia in human yeah. history. I kind of agree with that too. We have to be careful. Like what what Elon says is too. Like the the road to uh, hell are paved with good intentions or something. Yeah, yeah, and that's I think that's a perfect example of that. But um, okay, all right, we're uh, about two hours in. Let's uh, call it here. Thank you all very much for taking part of the discussion. Thank you to our panel members, Ryan, Hans, Mike. Thank you very much for taking part. Thank you for everybody dropping comments. Uh, if you enjoyed what you, what you saw, we'd love it if you uh, throw us a like on the video, subscribe, whatever, join the Patreon. Uh, just to let you guys know that this panel is made up entirely of uh, folks that have supported the channel through Patreon or by joining the YouTube. So thank you guys very much for doing that. And if you'd like to become a member, obviously feel free to do so. Uh, but we do these every Friday uh, on, on weeks where I'm here. <laughs> Next week I'll be gone again, but then I'm back for, for the foreseeable future. So uh, thank you all very much. Hope you enjoyed. Thank you to our panel members and we'll see you around. Take it easy, everybody.